from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Well, my guest today is somebody I'm sure many of you have heard about because of his best-selling books and his insightful uh, views about dealing with addiction and his being really traveling all around the world talking about this. His name is Gabor Mate. He's a Hungarian-Canadian physician and therapist. He was born in Nazi-occupied Budapest in 1944 emigrated to Canada in 1956 and grew up and has spent much of his life in Vancouver. And he's been a practicing physician. He worked for like a dozen years with uh, really down and out drug users in the downtown east side of Vancouver. But Gabor and I first crossed paths about 14 years or so ago when his book came out called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. And that book really put Gabor on the map in my world, not just drug policy, but the broader world of how we deal with psychoactive drugs and addiction. And out of that grew his really becoming a kind of globe-trotting speaker and therapist, uh, and then at some point getting involved also in ayahuasca. I mean, he's just had this fascinating life. And most recently, a few months ago, he came out with a new book called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. So, Gabar, uh, you know, it's good to see you again. Thanks so much for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive. It's great to reconnect with you again, Ethan. It's been a lot of years. I know. I I mean, I was thinking back to, uh, I guess it was, you must have come to New York in 2008 or 9, called me up and we had lunch together. And I have to tell you, over the years, I've heard so many people who have been so shaped and influenced and even, you know, in some respects saved by by your teaching. So I really want to get into that. And I want to give you a chance to talk about the new book. But of course, for me and the listeners, you know, the focus is very much on drugs and addiction. So part of what we'll be talking about is really the overlap and the connection between those two. So let me just start off by asking you, I mean, you had that book, Hungry Ghosts, and now you have the myth of normal, which is not just about addiction, but really about a whole range of physiological, you know, maladies and such. And the common link appears to be your focus on trauma. So just to explain that link and also the evolution from the Hungry Ghost book to the current one. Sure. So 
what I'm actually arguing is, and, and it's not just a matter of my personal insight, but really a lot of science that demonstrates this, is that the common denominator in most chronic conditions of mind and body is actually trauma. And this is what, true whether or not we're talking about addictions, the so-named mental illnesses, uh, from ADHD to depression to psychosis to bipolar conditions, borderline personality, all these diagnoses, they have a common thread of trauma, as do rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, um, autoimmune diseases in general, uh, many malignancies as well, as do addictions, of course. I've always argued that addictions are rooted in trauma. And so that's the common thread. Uh, is trauma, and the the reason the book is subtitled Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture is because I argue that the very conditions of life in modern-day um, globalized corporate capitalist society actually traumatize people. They hurt people, they wound people, and that diseases of mind and body in this environment are not abnormal. They're normal responses to what is an abnormal culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at one point, there's a quote uh, that you have, uh, starting with the chapters, by Eric Fromm, and you say, the fact that millions of people share the same vices does not make these vices virtues. The fact that they share so many errors does not make the errors to be truths. And the fact that millions of people share the same forms of mental pathology does not make these people sane. So expand on that. Sure. So... We have this idea that normal uh, equates to healthy and natural, and within a narrow range of, uh, of understanding, that is correct. So in medical parlance, we're talking about the range of circumstances or parameters within which human life thrives and is sustainable. So there's a normal range of temperature. If you fall below or go above that, your life is at risk. There's a normal range of blood pressure. That equates to what is healthy and natural. Below that or above that, life is threatened. So normal there means healthy and natural. We make then the assumption that that which we're used to in society in general is also healthy and natural. And what Fromm's um, citation from a book he wrote in the 1940s called The Sane Society, and what I have to say have in common is that what is considered the norm in this culture is actually pathological. So that for example, the idea, sort of the motivating idea, the, the assumption about human nature, that we are aggressive, competitive, individualistic creatures, that's the norm. That's what's sold to us as reality. In fact, it's a pathology. It, it creates a whole lot of illness, very specifically. It is normal in this culture um, for parents to be told not to pick up their kids when they're crying. That's the norm. But it's completely healthy and unnatural and totally foreign to human evolution, to indigenous cultures, or for that matter, to any of our mammalian uh, relatives. You know, you tell mm -hmm. a mother gorilla not to pick up their baby when they're distressed, you know? So a lot of the things that are actually pathological and they're shared across the culture are actually uh, unhealthy and, 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 and unnatural, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and they, they create disease. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's one part of me that listens to this and say, well, I mean, yes, you look around what's going on, uh, you know, especially with technology now and, you know, the screen dominating more and more people's lives, especially young people beyond that, and, and a whole range of other things that does, in fact, seem pathological. Consumerism, materialism, you know, the yeah. crasser elements of dynamic capitalism around the world. Yeah. And the other part of me goes, doesn't that in a way sort of romanticize a past? I mean, we think about the fact that people's average lifespan has gotten so much longer. We think about the frequency with which people oftentimes died, oftentimes people died violently, you know, and oftentimes in much larger numbers in, you know, centuries past and decades past. We think about the pervasive racism and sexism and, and stuff that happened in the past. So is there, I mean, didn't those prior societies also have their own dramatic traumas, even if mothers were better at nurturing their babies and not deluded? by these directives about what's the proper way to bring up a kid? Well, Ethan, that's a good question, but it's a question of what, what baseline are we looking at? If we're actually looking at our evolutionary origins, uh, what you're saying is not the case. So that human beings have lived in what we call civilization 
only for about 12,000 years, 12 to 15,000 years at the most. Now, our own species, Homo sapiens, we've been on Earth for about 150, 200,000 years, and other hominin species, you know, pre-modern mm -hmm. humans, but fellow human beings have lived on the Earth for at least half a million years or longer. And evolutionarily speaking, hominids have been here for millions of years. And so all that time, until 12,000, 15,000 years ago, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups. That's how we evolved. That is what a wonderful researcher, Garcia Narvez from Notre Dame University, calls our evolutionary niche. Now, in that evolutionary niche, it's not true that we had more disease. Um, it's not true that we are more violence. So in those small groups, people basically lived collaboratively, uh, cooperatively, they had to. It's not a question of moral superiority. It's a question of that's what it took to survive. And so in those environments, children were picked up, they weren't put down. Um, the children spent their whole day on the adults. And th this has been studied in terms of those indigenous cultures that have not been totally destroyed by colonialism. They tend to be much healthier than we are, actually. Well, I, I don't. I mean, I also think about you know even pre-colonialism, right? I mean, you have hunter-gatherer groups, but they had to fear about animals coming in and eating their parent in the middle of the night. They had to worry about marauding groups and other that's hostile a, that, groups. That, that, I have to say that that's a modern assumption. That's not what the research shows. Well, but I think so, so it does vary from, I mean, even if one looks, for example, at some of the history of Native Americans, you know, before even colonization, or you look at, you know, I mean, you had, you know, warring tribes, and you had that were so, others that, that were sedentary and landed. That's, that, and that's I true. And I that the same was true elsewhere. Well, well no? what you're saying is true. So it depends on what level of civilization we're at. See, what, what I'm saying is that once you get larger groupings and uh, more civilized, quote-unquote, societies, you're gonna get more and more what you're talking about. It's not a matter of um, romanticizing anything, and it's certainly not a matter of returning to ways of life that are no longer accessible to us, but it is a matter of learning what we've lost in the process. Mm -hmm. so, so that when the Christians came to North America, they were appalled by the parenting practices of the natives, you know why? Because the natives didn't beat their kids. Mm -hmm. and, to the, and to the Christians, this was a sin. And yet mm -hmm. we know that we know that beating kids is actually traumatic for kids, and these mm -hmm. people did did not hit their children, and so again, it's not a matter of romanticizing a way of life or or saying that they were perfect; they were not. But we've lost a lot. So in in terms of our civilization, for all our achievements, we've lost certainly the attachment relationships that indigenous people would have with their children and with each other. We've lost a sense of common communality. Um, in in for this book, I spoke with a <clears throat> an American psychiatrist and physician called Louis Mel Madrona, and Louis has written books on book, book called Coyote Medicine, and he's written another book called Narrative Medicine and and the Power of Storytelling and Healing. And he's from Lakota background partly, and he says that in a Lakota tradition, when somebody gets ill, they say to the person, in effect. Thank you. Your illness is manifesting some dysfunction in our whole culture, in our whole society, in our whole community. So your healing is our healing. Now, scientifically, that is actually the case. But Western medicine forgets that. We separate the mind from the body, and we separate the individual from the environment. And yet that Lakota tradition, scientifically, is much more accurate. Mm -hmm. so, for, so, for example, um, an American black woman, the more experiences of racism they experience, the higher the risk for asthma. So there's something about social stress and racial stress that actually inflames the lungs, the airways of the individual, which means, is that asthma a disease of an isolated organ in the body, or is it representing a social malaise? Now, the only scientific way of understanding is that the two can't be separated. So, mm -hmm. so I'm saying that there's things about indigenous wisdom that for a long time, um, were dismissed, but which modern science has actually proven. We have a lot to learn by mm -hmm. not being, certainly by not being arrogant about our achievements while ignoring all that we have lost in terms of human connection.
Yeah. I'll tell you, in reading The Myth of Normal these last few days, Gabor, I mean, I was struck by the amount of evidence that you marshaled in terms of the impact of what happens to us while we're in our mother's wombs and in early yeah. childhood in terms of affecting, you know, everything from various forms of mental and emotional health to even physical health. I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, at one point, a sort of semi-famous study called the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And then you dropped, you know, references to hundreds of others, including the one you were mentioning about the impact of racism. But just tell our listeners something about that ACE study and why it was significant and what sort of research out there it's emblematic of. Well, let me tell you about the ACE studies, and then also let me tell you a bit of our horror story. So the ACE studies, the ACE studies stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And these studies have been done, originally done in California in the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System. They looked at about, I think, about 17,000 adults. And they did a questionnaire on their childhoods, and they identified what they called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Anybody listening, they can go to the the web and just download their ACE questionnaire. And an ACE or an adverse childhood experience is, say, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. That's three. The death of a parent, the parent being addicted, a parent being mentally ill, a parent being jailed, a rancorous divorce, violence in a family, one parent hitting another. So for mm -hmm. each of these adverse childhood experiences, the risk of addiction goes up and used to work with addictions very much. And so the risk of addiction goes up exponentially. They don't add up, they multiply. By the time a male child has had six of these, his risk of being an injection using substance dependent adult is 4,600% greater, 46 fold increase than that of a child with no such experiences. So mm -hmm. there's a clear link between these traumatic incidents in childhood and adult addiction, but not just addiction, also mental health issues, autoimmune disease, and so on. So those are the ACE studies, and they have been published all over the world. They've been repeated always with the same results uh, internationally, and they've been published in major medical journals, psychological journals. That's the ACE studies, crucial studies in showing the relationship between early trauma, adversity, and uh, adult uh, illness of mind and body. That's the nutshell mm -hmm. version of it. Now, the horror story is this. Five years ago, so by the way, not just the AC studies, but you mentioned all the studies that I collated. Literally, I, for writing this book, I, over 10 years, I brought together 25,000 different articles, many, wow. of them, many of them research papers, scientific uh, publications, medical journal articles about all this stuff. So there's all this research now that a woman stresses during pregnancy, which is transmitted to the fetus through the umbilical cord and the stress hormones of the mother and the nervous system reactions to the mother. They um, have an impact on the infant, which is measurable even in utero by various techniques and which show up in high propensity to disease and mental health problems in the child later on. and giving this talk to an indigenous group here in Canada some years ago, I had a young man come up to me and says, hey doc, you know what you just said? In our community, when a woman was pregnant, and then if you were stressed or angry, you were not permitted to go near them because we mm -hmm. didn't want you passing on your stress or anger to the infant. So they knew this intuitively. Now we mm -hmm. have the science to show it. The horror story, you know, I'm putting that in quotation marks, is I was in Norway five years ago <clears throat> speaking at an addiction conference. There were two very famous American speakers there. I will not embarrass them by giving their names, but one of them is very high up in the world of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as high up as you can get. The other is a very well-known American psychiatrist. He edited one of the versions of the DSM and is published extensively. Um, and quoted extensively in the national media. Very well-known people, both of them. We had dinner before the uh, conference, and I said to the one of them, where do you live? And they mentioned a certain city. I said, oh, you must know Dr. Vincent Felitti. He said, who is that? I said, uh -huh. well, I said, Felitti happens to be the lead investigator for the famous adverse childhood experiences studies. This leading American psychologist and his leading American psychiatrist both said, what are those? Mm -hmm. They'd never heard of them, despite the fact that they've been published all over the world 
in all manner of leading scientific and medical publications. That's the horror story, is that on the one hand, we have all this research, all this evidence. On the other hand, the leading institutions and the leading representatives of the so-called healing institutions in our culture don't even have acquaintance with all that information. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well, let me ask you this, because, you know, it seems to me in sort of psychotherapy and in trying to heal, right, that, that one of the kind of overlapping elements, even with the cognitive behavioral therapy folks, right, is that part of what's so crucial is changing one's story, one's narrative. And I noticed yeah. in reading your stuff, it's also about changing the story if you change the narrative. Now, you're changing the narrative is much more, de you know, grounded in trying to process and get out underlying elements of the trauma. Trauma, the prenatal trauma, the the childhood trauma, um, but the, is it? Am I? Is what I'm saying right? That this change in changing one's story, one's narrative about one's life, is a common element in much of what proves to be effective in in psychotherapy and in healing. In principle, that's true. In practice, it depends on uh, precisely how deep that goes and with what kind of insight. So, yeah. So I talk about myself and my own particular infancy, where. You mentioned I was born, or at least I spent most of my first year under Nazi occupation in, in Hungary and uh, under threat of annihilation, my mother and I, and for five weeks we were separated. I couldn't, couldn't even see her as a, as a one-year-old, 11-month-old. Now, what I made that mean, what I mean that mean is that I wasn't lovable and I wasn't loved and I was being abandoned. Mm -hmm. I couldn't interpret that no other way. Now, in fact, of course, what really happened was that her giving me to the stranger in the streets of Budapest, a place where I stood right on the spot just a few weeks ago, actually, was an act of incredible love and courage and, and self-sacrifice. You know, imagine a 24-year-old woman giving her baby to a stranger in the street to save his life. But as an infant, I had no other way of understanding it but that this was an abandonment, and who gets abandoned? Somebody who deserves to be abandoned. So I grew up with that kind of self-concept. Healing does involve, in the end, come to terms with the stories that the trauma imprinted in your brain and in your body. I just don't think it's as simple as some people make it out to be. Uh, so I've read Brian Katie's book with great appreciation, and her, her questions doing the work, the four questions that she asks, are really helpful very often in relationships, because what they do is they they actually invite the person to take responsibility for their beliefs and their reactions, not to make the other person wrong for them. That's really mm -hmm. good. But they don't really deal with the trauma element very much, which is how people develop these beliefs in the first place mm -hmm. and, and the traumatic imprints that keep them going. So as useful as that work is, I, find, I do find it lacking in that area. And and so mm -hmm. that's and that's the problem with most of these therapies is like CBT will change your stories, but mostly the conscious stories that you already know or that can be elicited through conscious questioning. But a lot of the stories that people carry about themselves, for example, that I'm not worthy, that I have to prove the value of my existence by being a work colleague doctor, those are not conscious. I'm not aware mm -hmm. of them. They're automatic because they're imprinted in my unconscious. And mm -hmm. so so the real deep therapy has to go to what are you carrying that you're not aware of, which nevertheless um, controls your life? In, right. a certain, in a certain sense, these dynamics are like uh, strings in the hands of a puppeteer, you know, and, and we're pulled like puppets by these unconscious strings until you become aware. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories 
cuddles and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is there an element to what you're saying that's also Freudian? Because I know it's like in the myth of normal, Freud barely gets a mention. Um, but is there a commonality with Freudian psychoanalysis in terms of wanting to go back to those early stages? And if so, yes. And to what extent, no? Yeah. So, so Freud was a very flawed genius, and uh, both genius and very flawed. And the reason I don't talk about him much is because fundamentally he betrayed himself. So his original understanding of, of mental illness or what he called neurosis in those days, and it, this is in a paper that he printed in 1895, did say that a lot of the patients that come to him were sexually abused. And this, however, didn't fly very well in polite Viennese middle-class society. And if he wanted to be a successful doctor um, and, and celebrated, he'd had to walk that one back. Furthermore, he hadn't dealt with his own trauma. So he comes up with all these cockamamie theories, like the Oedipus complex and the Electro complex, and basically that these, these young women who had reported sexual abuse were in fact fantasizing about sleeping with their fathers. So he fundamentally made a good step, and then he erased his own footprints and developed all these cockamamie theories. But what was a significant contribution on his part were, I'd say, two number of basic concepts, but the two fundamental ones was that so much of what makes us act resides in the unconscious, and that that unconscious is shaped by early childhood experiences. That's absolutely true. What mm -hmm. he made of that, because he couldn't deal with the trauma, he just couldn't really, he couldn't face the trauma. He basically got, got scared of his own shadow. And so psychoanalysis was thrown way off course and uh, hence you have this phenomenon of people being in analysis for years and years and years, you know, and they're like kind of a Woody Allen character, one of his movies, who is in therapy forever and doesn't change at all, which, by the mm -hmm. way, probably re reflects on the author of those movies as well. So I don't talk about Freud very much because he didn't understand trauma. In fact, he, uh -huh. he, he ignored it. And, and, and no understanding of human development or mental illness can possibly strike home unless people understand the traumatic source as it affects the development of the personality, but also as it affects the physiological development of the nervous system itself. Mm -hmm. You quote at one point uh, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, right? another kind of colleague who's written about trauma, whose book, The Body Knows the Score, and you quote him as saying, all trauma is preverbal. And trauma is not what happens to you, but what happens in, inside you, I guess is how you say you put it. And then you quote Bessel van der Kolk again as saying, trauma is when we are not seen and known. Exactly. So 
that can show up in via dire ways because when somebody sexually abuses a child they're not seeing the child they're seeing an object that they want to use for their own purposes but that dynamic of not being seen can happen without any abuse whatsoever just in the home where the parents are too stressed depressed distracted caught up in their own relationship issues their own addiction perhaps or just the stresses of modern life the lack of time the child will not be seen and being seen uh, i mean as a as a full human being is an essential developmental need of the child just as much as food is so people can be wounded in in the in the dramatic ways that the ac studies indicate but children can also be wounded just because their needs in this stressed culture are not being met hence the mm-hmm. epidemic of childhood health problems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you're pretty damning about both the whole notion of the disease theory, calling addiction a disease. I mean, saying that on the one hand, there are sort of commonalities there, but that thinking about it as disease is fundamentally a problem. And you're also damning about all the genetic determinism, you know, and all the way people reference, say, the, tw- the twins who are separated at birth, grow up in different environments, but nonetheless have higher incidences of certain types of, uh, you know, behaviors, whether they're negative behaviors, positive behaviors. But I mean, and the genetic thing, I think you, you at one point, you quote Robert Sapolsky saying, we're freer from genetics than any other species on Earth. And then yeah. you quote two French scientists saying, when all is said and done, the individual is genetically determined not to be genetically determined. That's correct. So just explain to our listeners more about why this genetic, you know, emphasis on genetic determinism is so fundamentally flawed. And then we'll get into disease theory a bit. So here's the deal. Nobody has ever found a single gene that if you have it, you're going to have a certain mental health condition. No, but well, with the exception of um, there are some rare cases where somebody has a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's. Okay, that's true. Most cases of Alzheimer's has nothing to do with genes. There is Huntington's chorea that Woody Guthrie, you know, suffered with. Um, that's genetic. If you have the gene, you're going to have the disease. Or Tay-Sachs disease among Ashkenazi yeah. Jews, or maybe sickle cell anemia, or exactly. things like that. These exist. Right. There's, there's a disease called muscular dystrophy that runs in my family. My mother had it, my aunt had it. If you have the mm-hmm. gene, you're going to have the disease. Those diseases are very rare, like one in 10,000, something like that. And most conditions, let's speak of mental health conditions just for the moment. There's no single gene that if you have it, you're gonna have depression or anxiety or addiction. There's no group of genes that if you have it, you're gonna have depression, anxiety or addiction or ADHD. And there's no group of genes that if you don't have them, you can't have these diseases. So that it's not genetic. Now there is something genetic going on here. It's true that there's a large amorphous group of genes that the more of them you have, the more you're likely to have almost any mental health condition, but nothing specific. So nothing is genetically determined. And you can be born with the same genes and not have any disease whatsoever. All depends on the environment. So what these genes do confer is degrees of sensitivity. And the more sensitive you are temperamentally, the more you're gonna be affected by whatever happens in the environment. That means if the environment is harmful or doesn't meet your needs, you're gonna be more affected than somebody else. It also means that if the environment is supportive and nurturing, you're gonna be that much better off than somebody else but the genes themselves don't determine, okay? Now, this is contrary to most what most doctors believe in the face of all the science. Why is that? First of all, genetics offer three benefits, quote unquote. One is they're simple. Oh, it's genetic, okay, now we understand it. And the mind likes simple explanations, number one. Number two, if it's genetic in a family, for example, If a parent comes to me with a child with ADHD, and if I tell them, well, it's a genetic condition, the parent feels off the hook, because what can they do about the genes that they passed on? Mm -hmm. As opposed to if I say to them, you know, this is a temperamentally, genetically very sensitive child, and he's responding to family stress from in utero onwards. That's more difficult for parents to deal with, because now they feel a lot of inappropriate but almost natural guilt for having screwed up their kid. So the genetics takes them off the hook. On the social level, genetics says, you know, and I quote Louis Menon writing in the New Yorker about this one day, he says, you know, why should somebody 
be upset or use drugs or you know in in the in the healthiest and the most free society in the world it can't be the environment it must be the genes so society is taken up the hook of looking at how we traumatize large numbers of people so in canada an indigenous woman has six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than that of anybody else in the united states people of color have much more illness high blood pressure um, autoimmune disease and so on and so forth if it's all genetic we don't have to look at racism as a social construct and right and all but, on the, and there's, but you are saying that I mean, genetics can lead to a greater probability of somebody being afflicted with a particular condition it's just it's obviously not deterministic because the environmental factors and both interpersonal and broader are what play the much more important role is that right well, the genetics only play the role in the sense of creating a higher degree of sensitivity. So people mm -hmm. are more, more reactive to the environment. Mm -hmm. um, to go back to the twin study question, you know, they separate twins at birth, as sometimes happened. Then it turns out that it doesn't matter if they're brought up in different homes, they have a great propensity to have some of the similar conditions. So that if one has ADHD, the other was also has got a 70% chance of having ADHD, this proves that it's genetic. It proves the opposite. If it's genetic, why isn't it 100%? Mm -hmm. That's the first point. The second point is, it's not true that twins didn't have the same environment. They spent nine months in the same uterus. Now, any woman that's gonna give up a baby for adoption is by definition a stressed woman. She's a single mom, an addicted mom, a poor mom, an abused mom, uh, an unsupported mm -hmm. teenage mom. In other words, for nine months, the hormones of stress are going through to the baby, to the placenta. We've already talked about that. And mm -hmm. then there is the separation from the birth mother, which is an incredible trauma to an infant, to any infant of any mammal. And uh, the human being is really meant to be with the mother for a long time. Now, that doesn't happen in these separation twin studies. Any wonder that if one twin has a condition, the other one has an increase, also increased chance of having it. It's got nothing to do with genetics, except for the fact that if they're genetically similar, they're bound to have the same sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Now, much the same can be said about the whole emphasis on calling addiction as a disease, because when you do that, you obviously take the responsibility to some level off the individual or off the people who have been, you know, pivotal in their life, like their parents. Um, you know, but you also, you interesting, you take issue at one point, you know, you, the great, you know, critic of the late 20th century in America, Susan Sontag, yeah. whose famous essay was called Illness as Metaphor. Mm -hmm. And you say, God, I really admire her, but I wish she hadn't been so wrong in the way she laid this out. Well, Susan Sontag, uh, as you know, died of uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and she wrote this illness, illness as Metaphor as a stern and uh, almost... Um, contemptuous dismissal of the idea that emotions had anything to do with physical illness. And, and mostly because she didn't want to be culpabilized, as she said, culpabilized. I didn't want to make feel guilty for my own illness. But what's her actual story? You know her actual story was? She was a severely traumatized child who, whose mother left her when she was a couple of months old, came back into her life when she was three or four years old, left again. Susan actually writes in her diary, that she was very angry with her mother and she turned that anger against herself. She repressed her own emotions in order to be accepted by other people, precisely the dynamics that lead to illness. So on the one hand, she had this incredible insight into her own mind. On the other hand, she denied the connection between those dynamics and illness, which scientifically is completely incorrect. So it's very sad to read her because on the one hand, she even knew that she disconnected from her true self in order to adapt to her childhood environment. She turned her anger at her mother against herself in, in terms of self-loathing. I'm, I'm quoting her own words. And at the same time, denied that that had anything to do with the illnesses. And I'm telling you, they do for physiological reasons. Because when mm -hmm. you suppress your emotions, you're actually messing with your physiology. Why? Because mm -hmm. you can't separate the mind from the body. Now you say, I only want to suggest that quote, disease is more therapeutically useful as a metaphor rather than as a literal fact. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. So let's say that I say to you, Ethan, I have an addiction, or I have rheumatoid arthritis, or I have depression. 
there's an assumption in that statement. What is the assumption? The assumption is, is that there are two entities. There's this disease, this thing, then there's an I, and I have this thing. Now, you and I aren't on video, but you'll have to take my word for it. I have a teacup in my hand. It's a thing. It's not a part of me. It's not a manifestation of me. I can put it down. I can pick it up. I can drink from it. I can smash it if I want to. But it's got nothing to do with me. To say that I have a disease is to assume that there's this entity called multiple sclerosis or addiction or rheumatoid arthritis that are separate from me and I, the entity that's I, has that thing. And that thing has got a nature of its own. I'm saying that all illnesses, whether mind and body, they're not things with their own self-determined trajectory. They're processes that happen in a person. And there are processes that happen both on the physiological and the psychological level, and there are processes that reflect a person's life experience from conception onwards. So to look on disease as a process in which I can take some active agency is very different from saying, I got this disease and here's the prognosis. That prognosis has got nothing to do with you as a person. That's based on statistics. Based on statistics collated by physicians who understand nothing about the mind-body unity. Right. But it goes to the whole way, whether as a culture or as an individual or in our relationship with doctor, we talk about, you know, conquering this pain, conquering yeah. the disease, beating the addiction, war on cancer. And yeah. what you're basically saying, what we really need is the dialogue with any one of those things, um, the well, embracing of it. You spent so much of your useful working life trying to undo, undo the myths perpetrated by the so-called war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And we know how successful the war on drugs have been. It's been so successful that last year, over 100,000 Americans died of overdoses. You know, that's how successful mm -hmm. it's been. Now, it's the same with the war on cancer. We're not a minute closer to solving the problem of cancer than we were 50 years ago, except in some conditions. There's been some progress, but overall, no. The war on illness, autoimmune diseases are rising rather than subsiding. And so this whole battling and warring against some enemy misses the point that illnesses of mind and body, addictions and so on, are processes that are normal responses to abnormal circumstances and that we can actually deal with them by understanding their true nature, not by mm -hmm. seeing them as some kind of a mysterious enemy. You know, Gabor, I'll tell you, I had my own experience uh, decades ago when I was, it began in my 20s and really culminated in my early 30s of just absolutely intense sciatica and lower back pain. Mm -hmm. And I went to a doctor and I got diagnosed and I had two herniated discs, you know, L4, L5 and L5S1. And the pain, I mean, the, the third time, it was just, you know, just incredible. And I was being prescribed, you know, benzos and being prescribed, I think, oxycodones and none of it was really helping at all. I mean, occasionally when if I got drunk, you know, that, that would actually take away the pain. Uh, yeah. Briefly. And then I was talking with Andrew Weil, who was a good friend at the time, and yeah. he said, Read this book by John Sarno. Dr. Sarno. Healing yeah. Back Pain. Absolutely. Right? But I read this book, and Sarno's basic view was there's nothing physically wrong with your body. I mean, unless you've been right. hit by a truck or something like that. And all this stuff about herniated discs, it's basically bullshit. And if you randomly take 100 or 200 x rays, it turns out tons of people with herniated discs and no pain, and vice versa. And exactly. what his argument was, was that I was basically that there was an underlying angst, anger, anxiety that I was not processing. And my brain was playing a trick, you know, wh whereby it basically transformed an emotional pain into a physical pain. Yeah. And then what he said is that simply accepting his diagnosis 100%, not just in my conscious mind, but in my subconscious mind, accepting yeah. that there was zero wrong with my back and, my, and these hernia discs were relevant, that that itself would be the cure. I didn't even have to figure out why I had the pain. He goes, but if you want to reduce the likelihood of a 
recurrence, it's probably a good idea to try to do some work with a therapist or however to try to figure out what was that underlying pain about anyway. And I have to tell you, for me, it was basically a miracle cure. I mean, I've came out of that and I've become a sort of proselytizer for that. And I think I've known many people who's helped. I know of huge numbers. Now, for my case, it didn't have to do with processing a kind of inf infantile you know, trauma or things that happened then. It had to deal with processing things that were happening in my current life, some of which might have been shaped by what happened to me when I was much younger. But it was about dealing with that piece in my own life. But so the notion of your focus on don't ask about the addiction or the substance, focus on the pain underlying it resonates with, resonates with me totally. Well, first of all, I very much know about Sarno's work. And, and Sarno pointed out, he actually called it TMS, uh, tension myositis syndrome eventually, which mm -hmm. means that the the emotional, the anger and, 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 and the stress that you're carrying would cause your muscles to go into spasm and that would um, uh, create a toxic environment in which pain would arise and so on. And by understanding all that, you could let go of it. And it's certainly true. I mean, I've had back surgery and I was grateful for it. But out of 100 people with back surgery, maybe three or four should have it. The other 94 should do what you did. You know, mm -hmm. and and I make the same case. So when people started reading my book, when the body says no, which makes the same case about illness in general, <clears throat> as Sarno makes about back pain, they keep asking me if I knew about Sarno's work, and, uh -huh. I, and I hadn't known about it because, of course, Sarno, like me, was a medical doctor, but his work was never publicized within the medical realm. So, mm -hmm. like you, I had to find out about it through other sources. But his work is very much related to my work, except he was a back specialist, I was a general physician, so I applied the same principles in a much broader realm as I do in this book, The Myth of Normal as well. What I would say about you adult stresses is that they very much had to do with childhood dynamics. And the issue is not to go back and keep delving on what happened in childhood, that's not what the problem is. The problem is the imprints that we're carrying today of what happened in childhood. So. When you quoted me as saying that trauma is not what happened to you, but what happened inside you is a result of what happened to you. What happened inside you is the wounding that then creates certain behaviors. The issue is not to go back and keep analyzing what happened, you know, in your case, six decades ago, in my case, over seven decades ago, but to understand how is that showing up today in my life? How is that pulling my strings, to go back to my puppet analogy, and how can I cut the strings? And how can I be free mm -hmm. in the present moment? How can I be aware of what's happening within me right now and not be under the tyranny of the past, to quote Peter Levine? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally with Sarno, except I think I understand trauma more broadly than he ever did because that, you know, he was focusing very much on the back. He helped thousands of people avoid surgery and lead pain-free lives. So I mean, he's a very remarkable and important figure. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. 
win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is happening, at least in some universities now, and you're seeing it manifest, is the psychedelic renaissance, right? Yeah. And you talk about this in the latest book, and you've talked about it obviously more broadly. You see major universities from Harvard and Yale and Columbia and, you know, University of California, University of College London and Baylor, et cetera, et cetera, all setting up research institutes. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's something about psychedelics that both you in your own interaction with people, as well as the broader scientific evidence, is showing that there's really something special here that, and not least, to the extent that you place this emphasis on very early trauma in people's lives, the psychedelics appear to have some unique properties at accessing that. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, I was surprised that when you wrote Hungry Ghosts, you didn't know about any of the early evidence about using psychedelics for this. But once you become aware of it, you really seem to embrace it wholeheartedly. Well, how would I know about it? Not, nobody in my medical training ever mentioned it, you know, uh, like many other things. So you might recall in this book, I give a case of a woman I know very well. She was given a terminal diagnosis of an autoimmune disease eight or nine years ago in her early, late 20s. Um, nothing that Western medicine, whether it's you know, steroid hormones or anti-immune or immune suppressants or painkillers, she did do anything for her. She was paralyzed in the sense that she couldn't get out of bed by herself. She couldn't barely move her arms and legs anymore. Her face was a rigid mask of pain. She just wanted to die. And now she's walking around, writing autobiography, writing poetry, hiking, mobile, living, active, and thriving. And this came through ayahuasca. And from the point of view of Western medicine, that makes no sense. From the point of view of narrow Western medicine, that makes no sense. But if you understand the mind-body unity, and, and what nobody asked this person is, what was your life like? Well, she was a traumatized child, adopted from a foreign country, sexually abused in childhood, all kinds of stuff. She developed certain rigid personality patterns, uh, which then stressed her, which then made her sick. And with the psychedelic plant, she was able to see all that, not, not overnight, but it was dramatic nevertheless. And she was able to deal with these traumas, see how she developed these emotional dynamics that were not serving her anymore. And she has fu fundamentally turned it right around. And that story is not unique, nor is it scientifically any kind of a miracle. It's simply what you expect when people are able to as you said earlier, not just consciously, but on the unconscious level, deal with their beliefs about themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you have this charming little story in your book where you talk about your experience going down to Peru to work with some shamans, and you mm -hmm. developed this thing where you would work with the shamans, and you would help prepare people to, you know, what were the questions they wanted to be considering before they took, you know, did the ceremony, and then help them process it the next day and do all this sort of thing. And you've done it many times, and you tell the story of showing up there after the first time or the very beginning, all of a sudden the shamans take you aside and saying, we're sorry, we need you to withdraw entirely from yeah. this. And 
just stay by yourself for the next 10 days because your energy is dark. And you say you, that you're thinking, my God, I've had such success helping people through this. And all these people have come because they want to be at a, at a shamanic ceremony where I'm playing a role. But at the same time, you know, you're also acknowledging that you yourself have never had a kind of deep spiritual experience with ayahuasca. So just uh, say a little more about what you learned from that whole experience and its outcome. Well, so these this happened uh, just before I started writing the Myth of Normal in uh, June of 2019. And yes, I did go to Peru where a couple of dozen health workers, you know, doctors, psychiatrists, counselors, psychologists came to work with me and at this retreat. And they, I'd come from a very long, stressful speaking trip. I was completely bagged out. And of course, I was just going to go do my usual thing and do my work, you know, regardless of... Mm -hmm my own state, typical workaholic behavior. And uh, these shamans took me aside after one ceremony. They said, buddy, you're fired. So they fired me from my own retreat. And they said, you're carrying too much darkness. And you have to understand, Ethan, they knew nothing about me as a person. I mean, they were not impressed with my credentials because they didn't know my credentials, you mm -hmm. know, and all these books and work that I'd done. They just said, we think, number one, you worked with a lot of traumatized people and you've absorbed their traumas and you don't know how to clear it out of yourself, number one. And number two, we think you had a very, very big scare when you were very small early in your life and you haven't got over it yet. And they were pointing right to my infancy without knowing my history. And so they assigned one of them to work with me alone in five ceremonies over 10 days, during which I was in isolation, basically. And the other five shamans worked with the participants who came to work with me. And uh, I did a profound spiritual experience, not easily, it took the guy five ceremonies at the very end of the fifth, when I thought it was all over, when all of a sudden, the spirit hit me, if you want, or entered me, if you were, or I opened to it, if you want to put it that way. It was very deep, very powerful, and life-changing. And they took these native shamans to be able to read me energetically and to see inside me with the help of the plant to to do that work and, and to have the presence to say to this Western doctor, listen, buddy, you need the help. You're not here to help others. You're going to have to accept the help yourself for a change. That was life-changing. Mm -hmm. And how was it life-changing? I mean, was it, was it your first sense of a feeling of the divine? Was it, it, had it changed the way you're interacting when you were doing your sessions with uh, patients? I wish I could tell you that I came back an enlightened and transformed person, but as my wife could tell you, that ain't that ain't necessarily so. Um, but it did further and in significant way initiate a process in which number one, I dropped this belief that I've always had, which I consciously I knew couldn't have been right, but it was on an emotional level an absolute fixation of mine that I could help other people heal, but I can't be healed myself. You know. That experience knocked that one out of the water. And the other, so that the possibility of healing became not just a belief, but an actual experience on my part. That's the first. The second was that I realized that my childhood will never not have happened. So the fact that I spent my first year the way I did, separated from my mother for a while, the fact that my grandparents were died in Auschwitz when I was five months of age, and my mother spent the rest of the year grieving for them. All that stuff could never be changed. But that doesn't have to define my future. It doesn't have to define my presence. So that my happiness and, and, and connection to life didn't have to be tainted or controlled by what happened early in life that there's actually freedom in the present moment. Gabor, I have to tell you, I mean, your book is inspiring in terms of writing insights about ways to deal with not just emotional but physical maladies through a more holistic mm. uh, healing approach um, in which people understand the process, you know, uh, that it's not just about treating disease. On the other hand, there's another takeaway feeling, which is, my God, we're all fucked. 
I mean, because <laughs> capitalism isn't getting anywhere. If anything, it's going to get more extreme. Materialism, you know, is pervasive. The consumptionism, not just in America, but in most societies around the world. The medical system being short on funds and doctors being pressed for time. Pharmaceutical companies being empowered to promote the sort of things that they do. You know, the sort of rapid evolution in the digital sophistication, you know, what's called constant connectivity, uh, or what you talk about in the book as a, a new way of persuasive design, where you design things to appeal specifically to people's addictive behaviors. I mean, I come away going, my God, you've identified all, all everything that's wrong going on in the medical system, the pharmaceutical system, the broader capitalist, cultural, political system. But how the hell do you dig ourselves out of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, you know, so this is where I go back to two things here that I talk about in the last chapter. One is the importance of becoming disillusioned. So we live with a lot of illusions, you know, and, and there's a quote James Baldwin who says that in this country, words are used to cover the sleeper rather than to wake them up. And so much of the culture is designed to put people to sleep and to keep them asleep. Now, we have to become disillusioned, not in the sense of becoming discouraged, but in the sense of losing our illusions. About the, and then part of the intent of the book is to wake people up. But folks, this is the nature of the society, and these are the impacts. So that's the first point, the need to become disillusioned. And I say to people, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Which would you rather be? The second um, response goes back to my discussion with Noam Chomsky, you know, who said that, He's a strategic optimist and a tactical pessimist, mm -hmm. which means that yes, in the short term, things are getting worse. You'd have to be blind to deny that. So that doesn't mean we're fucked. It means that we're getting fucked, you know. And but 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 the long-term optimism is in my faith, you might say, or my conviction that people have it in them to turn this around. If only we engage in the right conversations, if we only realize what our reality is, if we only get in touch with our own healing capacities, which is an intrinsic quality of all life, if we can become more collaborative and coordinated and, and, and cooperative in our responses, if we don't see each other as isolated, atomized individuals, if we don't buy into the values of this culture, change is actually possible. Not gonna happen anytime soon. But I do think it's entirely possible. And, uh, you know, I wrote the book not with a desire to spread the bad news, but to say to people, look, if you want to change, you have to see what's in the way of that change. And you have to deal with it, both on the personal and on the social level. Yeah, well, I mean, Gabar, I mean, that's a lot of ifs in there. But since you are ending on a positive note, I think that's a nice place to end <laughs> this conversation. All I can say is, look, more power to you. I hope that you're able to keep getting the word out and your message out for many years to come, because I think you're obviously playing an incredibly important and valuable and healing role in our society. So thank you. Thank you for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive. Thank you so much for having me. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking about the significance of alcohol prohibition in American history with Professor Lisa McGurr, professor at Harvard and author of The War on Alcohol. It just struck me that historians had not taken a serious enough look at the repercussions of prohibition, what happened once the 18th Amendment 
which was, of course, the amendment to the Constitution enacting national prohibition. What happened once it had passed? Historians kind of had felt that, you know, this was a huge policy failure and there wasn't much to say. It was a great disaster. (laughs) But there were huge implications that historians had not done enough to tease out. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.